Chapter Seven of the Night Horseman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Horseman by Max Brand. Chapter Seven. Jerry Stran. The wrath of the Lord seems less terrible when it is localized, and the world at large gave thanks daily that the range of Jerry Stran was limited to the three B's. As everyone in the mountain desert knows, the three B's are Bender, Buckskin, and Brownsville. They make the points of a loose triangle that is cut with canyons and tumbled with mountains, and that triangle was the chosen stamping ground of Jerry Strand. Jerry was not born in the region of the three B's, and why it should have been chosen specially by him was matter which the inhabitants could not puzzle out. But they felt that for their sins the Lord had probably put his wrath among them in the form of Jerry Strand. He was only twenty-four, this Jerry, but he was already grown into a proverb. Men of the three B's reckoned their conversational dates by the visits of the youth. If a storm hung over the mountains, someone might remark, "'It looks like Jerry Strand is coming.' And such a remark was always received in gloomy silence. Mothers had been known to hush their children by chanting, "'Jerry Strand will get you if you don't watch out.' Yet he was not an ogre with a red knife between his teeth. He stood at exactly the perfect romantic height. He was just six feet tall. He was as graceful as a young cottonwood in a windstorm. And he was as strong and tough as the roots of the mesquite. He was one of those rare men who are beautiful without being unmanly. His face was mottled with the care a Praxiteles would lavish on a Phoebus. His brown hair was thick and dark, and every touch of wind stirred it and his hazel eyes were brilliant with an enduring light, the inextinguishable joy of life. Consider that there was no malice in Jerry Strand, but he loved strife as the young Apollo loved strife, or a pure-blooded bull terrier. He fought with distinction and grace and abandon and was perfectly willing to use fists or knives or guns at the pleasure of the other contracting party. In another age, with armor and a golden chain and spurs, Jerry Strand would have been. But why think of that? Swords are not forty-fives, and the twentieth century is not the thirteenth. He was, in fact, born just six hundred years too late. From his childhood he had thirsted for battle as other children thirst for milk, and now he rode anything on hoofs and threw a knife like a Mexican, with either hand, and at short range he did snap-shooting with two revolvers that made rifle experts sick at heart. However, the men of the three B's, as everyone understands, are not gentle or long-enduring, and you will wonder why this young destroyer was allowed to range at large so long. There was a vital reason. Up in the mountains lived Max Strand, the hermit trapper, who hated everything in the wide world except his younger brother, the beautiful wild, and sunny Jerry Strand. And Max Strand loved his brother as much as he hated everything else. It is impossible to state it more strongly. It was not long before the men of the three bees discovered how Max Strand felt about his brother. 
After Jerry's famous Halloween party in Buckskin, for instance, Williamson, McKenna, and Rath started out to rid the country of the disturber. They went out to hunt him as men go out to hunt a wild mustang, and they caught him and bent him down, those three stark men, and he lay in bed for a month. But before the month was over, Max Strand came down from his mountain and went to Buckskin and gathered Williamson and McKenna and Rath in one public place. And when the morning came, Williamson and McKenna and Rath had left this vale of tears, and Max Strand was back on his mountain. He was not even arrested, for there was a devilish cunning about the fellow, and he made his victims, without exception, attack him first. Then he destroyed them, suddenly and surely, and retreated to his lair. Things like this happened once or twice, and then the men of the three bees understood that it was not wise to lay plots for Jerry Strand. They accepted him, as I have said before, as men accept the wrath of God. Let it not be thought that Jerry Strand was a solitary like his brother. When he went out for a frolic, the young men of the community gathered around him, for Jerry paid all scores, and the red eye flowed in his path like wine before the coming of Bacchus. Where Jerry went, there was never a dull moment, and young men love action. So it happened that when he rode into Brownsville this day, he was the leader of a cavalcade. Rumor rode before them, and doors were locked, and windows were darkened, and men sat in the darkness with their guns across their knees. For Brownsville lay at the extreme northern tip of the triangle, and it was rarely visited by Jerry. And it is well established that men fear the unfamiliar more than the known. As has been said, Jerry headed the train of revelers, partially because it was most unwise to cut in ahead of Jerry, and partially because there was not a piece of horseflesh in the three bees which could outfoot his chestnut. It was a gelding out of the loins of the north wind, and sired by the devil himself, and its spirit was one with the spirit of Jerry Strand, perhaps because they both served one master. The cavalcade came with a crash of racing hoofs in a cloud of dust. But in the middle of the street, Jerry raised his right arm stiffly overhead with a whoop and brought his chestnut to a sliding stop. The cloud of dust rolled lazily on ahead. The young men gathered quickly around the leader, and there was silence as they waited for him to speak, a silence broken only by the wheezing of the horses and the stench of sweating horseflesh was in every man's nostrils. "'Who owns that hoss?' asked Jerry Strand, and pointed. He had stopped just opposite O'Brien's hotel, store, blacksmith shop, and saloon, and by the hitching rack was a black stallion. Now, there are some men who carry tidings of their inward strength stamped on their foreheads and written in their eyes. In times of crises, crowds will turn to such men and follow them as soldiers follow a captain. For it is patent at a glance that this is a man of men. It is likewise true that there are horses which stand out among their fellows, and this was such a horse. He was such a creature that, if he had been led to a barrier, the entire crowd at the racetrack would rise as one man and say, What is that horse? There were points in which some critics would find fault, 
Most of the men of the mountain desert, for instance, would have said that the animal was too lightly and delicately limbed for long endurance. But, as the man of men bears the stamp of his greatness in his forehead and his eyes, so it was with the black stallion. When the thunder of the cavalcade had rushed upon him down the street, he had turned with cat-like grace and raised his head to see, and his forehead and his eyes arrested Jerry Strann like a leveled rifle. Looking at that proud head, one forgot the body of the horse, the symmetry of curves exquisite beyond the sculptor's dream, the arching neck and the steel muscles. One was only conscious of the great spirit. In human beings, we refer to it as personality. After a little pause, seeing that no one offered a suggestion as to the identity of the owner, Strand said softly, "'That horse is mine.' It caused a stir in the crowd of his followers. In the mountain desert, one may deal lightly with a man's wife and lift a random cow or two and settle the score at need with a snug forty-five chunk of lead. But with horses it is different. A horse in the mountain desert lies outside of all laws and above all laws. It is greater than honor and dearer than love. And when a man's horse is taken from him, the men of the desert gathered together and hunt the thief, whether it be a day or whether it be a month. And when they have reached him, they shoot him like a dog and leave his flesh to the buzzards and his bones to the merciless stars. For all of this there is a reason. But Jerry Strand swung from his mount, tossed the reins over the head of the chestnut, and walked toward the black with hungry eyes. He was careless also, and, venturing too close, the black whirled with his sudden cat-like agility, and two black hoofs lashed within a hair's breadth of the man's shoulder. There was a shout from the crowd, but Jerry Strand stepped back and smiled so that his teeth showed. Boys, he said, but he was really speaking to himself. There's nothing in the world I want as bad as I want that hoss. Nothing. I'm going to buy him. Where's the owner? Don't look like a horse a man would want to sell, Jerry, came a suggestion from the cavalcade, who had dismounted and now pressed behind their leader. Jerry favored the speaker with another of his enigmatic smiles. Oh, he chuckled, he'll sell all right. Maybe he's inside. You gents stick out here and watch for him. I'll step inside. And he strode through the swinging doors of the saloon. It was a dull time of the day for O'Brien, so he sat with his feet on the edge of the bar and sipped a tall glass of beer. He looked up at the welcome click of the doors, however, and then was instantly on his feet. The good red went out of his face, and the freckles over his nose stood out like ink marks. "'There's a black horse outside,' said Jerry, "'that I'm going to buy. "'Where's the owner?' "'Have a drink,' said the bartender, "'and he forced an amiable smile. "'I've got business on my hands, not drinking,' said Jerry Strand. "'Lost your chestnut?' queried O'Brien, in concern. "'That chestnut was all right until I seen that black.' Now he ain't a hoss at all. Where's the gent I want? The bartender had fenced for time as long as possible. Over there, he said, and pointed. It was a slender fellow sitting at a table in the corner of the long room. His sombrero pushed back on his head. He was playing solitaire, and his back was towards Jerry Strand, who now made a brief survey, hitched his cartridge belt, and approached the stranger with a grin. 
The man did not turn. He continued to lay down his cards with monotonous regularity, and while he was doing it, he said in the gentlest voice that had ever reached the ear of Jerry Strand, "'Better stay where you are, stranger. My dog don't like you.' And Jerry Strand perceived under the shadow of the table a blacker shadow, huge and formless in the gloom, and two spots of incandescent green twinkling toward him. He stopped. He even made a step back, and then he heard a stifled chuckle from the bartender. If it had not been for that untimely mirth of O'Brien's, probably nothing of what followed would have passed into the history of the three B's. End of chapter 7